If you do any prospecting with LinkedIn, you have got to go get set up with Surf. That's S-U-R-F-E. It's a tool you can use to add new contacts to your CRM system directly from LinkedIn in seconds. I'm using it every single day. I add contacts, follow my deals, keep track of notes, and it ends up saving me a bunch of time on prospecting and outreach, which means I can spend more time moving my deals along. The data is always 100% accurate since I don't have to copy and paste all the fields over from each and every contact that I want to put in my CRM. Instead, Surf does that all automatically with just one click in about 60 seconds. The team over at Surf has put together a very special offer for fans of sales players. There's a link down in the show notes and you can use the promo code JWSURF5. Don't forget the E at the end of Surf. That's JWSURF5 for 5% off your first year. Don't spend another minute doing things manually. Go get set up with Surf. My guest today is Bilal Batrawi. Bilal is arguably one of the most entertaining, interesting, and influential guests that I've had on the show to date, and I'm just over the top excited to introduce him as a guest. He changed the way that I'm thinking about doing my own selling. From prospecting to presentation skills, he has some really, really great insights on the buyer's journey and how we as salespeople can sort of elevate the profession by shifting our focus from who we are and what we do and all the fun things our product does to who is the buyer, what problems are we solving, what impacts are we having. He has this whole framework uh, called the mic drop method for cold calls. I'm going to post a link to access this. It's a free resource he's put out there. It's amazing. I've started implementing it and I can't believe how different my conversations are. So he is uh, the founder and creator of Death to Fluff. If you've been on LinkedIn for long enough, you've likely seen some of the content he's putting out there. He has well over a decade of experience in a number of different early stage technology startups. And I'm just so impressed with his approach to everything. And he's talking about a lot of topics that no one else is talking about in the space. And that's why I was so glad to have him on the show. So with that, welcome Bilal to the SaaS Sales Players Podcast. Hey Bilal, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jesse. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. So I've been following your content for a while and I, I'm just such a fan of the message that you have for sellers like myself and, and my, my counterparts out there in the space. And I'm super curious, how did you, how did you get into SaaS sales? initially? I think like many, I, it was uh, the only job that was recruiting when I got out of university. I, I still remember walking through the career fair. And I think the first couple of booths I went to, it was like executive assistants of, of like the district manager. I'm like, there's no way they're serious about hiring if they just sent, you know, somebody just to collect resumes, essentially, like this isn't even. So the only company that was there that actually had the hiring manager on site was a SaaS company, it was Trinet, and they were re recruiting for their first um, hires for inside sales, and the rest is history. I was like, this is pretty good. I'm gonna keep doing this sales stuff. Yeah, Trinet, I'm, I'm very familiar. <laughs> uh, what was that first role like? I, I imagine Trinet's relatively transactional, or were you working on you know strategic deals at that point? Uh, in the early days, man, we were just, just dialing for dollars. It was just uh, like a brand new team with like a huge market that was completely unproven and 
PEO wasn't really a popular thing. And so, yeah, we were just, we were just calling, but I was very fortunate that the manager I had was um, extremely skilled at, at sales, you know, very, very, very talented. I didn't know that at the time because it was my first manager. So I just assumed that was the norm. And now over my sales career, I look back and realize I was very lucky to have that mentorship and that, uh, that kind of experience guiding me early on. Um, that made a huge impact in my sales career, really helped me become the seller I am today. What kind of things was that manager doing that, you know, in, in retrospect, you realize were the signs of a world-class manager? I'm really curious if you can point to anything for, for the listeners. Uh, like mastery of like, so, so this manager would walk around with a little black book um, and a pen and was just writing down constantly notes and um, using that uh, one to, to help get the personal motivation that we all needed to succeed but two as well was a master of like numbers and details, okay, process. So everything process related. I remember him opening up his, his little black book and just being able to calculate. He said, okay, so if, if you're claiming this and you're claiming that and then doing some math, I mean, like this is how much work you're gonna need to do. This is how many hours you need to come in. And this is how much the Delta is for the rest of the month. And I was like, oh God, I'm like never gonna talk to you again. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is incredible. Like it was way, I didn't know you could derive all that from just a couple tidbits of info that I gave you. But that that's like master selling is that right. a mastery of the process. So, I mean, that was that's the science stuff of sales. And he had that. That's awesome. So from Trinet, where did you go next? And, and we're not going to go through one by one on your CV. It looks like you were at a handful of different startups, uh, probably first or in the first round of sales hires. Yeah, I, I stayed in startups after that. Trinet was a really great experience. We were a startup and we were selling to startups. So I got really deep into that ecosystem and I just stayed in it after that. So most of the companies that I joined, I was one of the first, if not the first sales hire. Um, and a lot of them were in that like zero to 10 million uh, growth range. So they were like mm -hmm. joining in like somewhere between, you know, half a million, a million, maybe up to a million and a half in revenue, and then leaving around 10, 15 million. So I got to experience that very early growth and it's, yeah. it's just great. I mean, like it's, it's not for everyone and it's, mm -hmm. um, it comes with a lot of risks. I mean, I tell the audience right now, anywhere from, you know, 91 to 97% of startups fail. So yeah. you, you got to know which ones to pick. I've been very fortunate that I've made some good decisions and dodged some bullets, but uh, when you find the right one, it's, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, you and I are so much alike in that way. I, my first two sales jobs were with bigger organizations and I was recruited to a, a series B startup that was yeah probably under, under 10 million, easily under 10 million in, in annual ARR. And from there, I've pretty much stayed in that space, uh, you know, with the exception of one unicorn company uh, that was a little bit on the bigger side, I've been mostly in series B stage companies and it does, it takes part artist, part crazy person, part yeah, scientist yeah. To, to come into that environment and figure it out and, and have the confidence to work with the founding team and, you know, be able to put something together out of nothing, which is really the, that's the skill set. But I was just always drawn to it because I love, you know, I love the idea of contributing meaningfully to a business. And I imagine you're the same mm -hmm. way you're, you're, you're self-employed now. So, you know, clearly you have the, the creative side down and, you know, you find something out of building something from scratch, but that's, that's awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, it's exactly as you said. There's more questions than answers. And I like yeah. that kind of environment where, you know, when you suggest something and someone goes, I don't know, why don't you go figure it out? I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I want to do that. You know, like that, I enjoy that. And so that's, that's startup land. And again, so for some people, it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go figure, figure things out that are unknown and fail and, um, you know, have to explain to everybody why it didn't work. But for others, that's, it's exciting. It's like, it's more strategy than sales usually um, at that, at that size of a company. Yeah. So tell, tell us about what you're doing now with death to fluff. And I, I know, I, I can't remember when I started following you on LinkedIn and I think I know you as the guy that's bonus for reading the comments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was your calling card. And that's how I, that's how I always remembered your content. I was like, Oh yeah, if you read the comments, you get the bonus stuff. Uh, but <laughs> tell us about death to fluff. Uh, you know, you make a pretty bold statement here on your LinkedIn. Uh, you, you say essentially the way sales teams are run today, causes mental health issues. So this is a really interesting premise to build a business on and one that resonates a lot with myself. And I know uh, my colleagues as well who follow you. Tell us about, you know, the business, the idea, what are you doing right now in the market to, to help and help solve that problem? Yeah, that's uh, it's a great question. So it was born out of um, just like the lack of really good content on LinkedIn, which, I mean, we're talking about two years ago, even so it wasn't that long ago, but like, I just, I just remember scrolling through my feed and just seeing, you know, screenshots of people's meetings. And, um, or at that time it was like booths at the conferences that they were attending, um, you know, somebody hiring and somebody reposting an article from their company's blog. And I'm just like, this is it. <laughs> this is not, not very good content, you know? So I, yeah. I'm world-class at jumping over low bars and thank God LinkedIn is a very low bar. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to jump over this bar. I'm, I'm good at this. And I just, I started posting. It also was born out of, I was kind of frustrated Jesse in the, um, yeah. the recruiting process, you know, uh, I was looking at startup number six at that time. And, you know, I was explaining myself to them and I was like, wait a second, last time I checked again, like 91 and 97% of startups failed. What makes you think you're part of that three to 9%? Because I definitely don't fail 91% of the time. So, you know, I think you need to do more explaining than I do. And uh, so I wanted to change that power dynamic. So that's that's where the posting came from. And Death to Fluff was was just a joke between friends and, uh, you know, threw a hashtag in front of it. And I noticed other people started using it. And I was like, oh, shit, this is a thing. Like, people might get behind this. Who knew? So that, yeah, I could never, if you asked me right now to recreate something as, uh, as compelling as death to fluff, it would never happen. I could not do it, but that one, that one I kind of fluked into. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it resonates with a lot of salespeople. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. a lot of us, um, we go through these common struggles in sales and we think that they're special and unique and they're not. And sometimes we think we're crazy for thinking they're wrong, but they're not, you know, we're not like, if you've been in sales long enough, you faked dials to look busy. If you've been in sales long enough, you've had your commission check played with. If you've been in sales long enough, you've been given a quota that is unachievable. And mathematically, you couldn't even know where, how it was calculated. You know, these things happen. And it's kind of sad that it's like, transcend space and time you know like you would have yeah you would have hoped like something like love would transcend space and time no like <laughs> shitty commissions is the thing that like transcended space and time <laughs> that is awesome uh yeah absolutely resonates and and i think it's even more extreme sometimes in the startup world 
because you're beholden to these arbitrary targets that some VC somewhere in San Francisco has put on a dartboard. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's a crude thing to say, but the reality, uh, my reality, having been in some early stage companies is there was no rhyme or reason to quota, uh, you know, quota targets or comp plans. It was always just, you know, you're flying by the seat of your pants and it was to appease, you know, someone who's never actually sat in the seat before and made a cold call uh, and couldn't do it to save their life. So that I love to hear that you shifted the power dynamics back on some of these startups and said, you need to prove to me why I should come work for you. Why am I interviewing here? Uh, I should be interviewing you because, you know, statistically speaking, I'm less likely to fail than your startup is. So that is just badass to hear. And I love it. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. It, it, it's, uh, yeah, it took, it took some guts or maybe some um, naivety, but it, it's, it's paid off over the last two years. So tell us about some of the work that you do with Death to Fluff. Uh, I, I want to bring up at some point too the the cold calling. Uh, is it a it's a it's not a program, but it's a like a cold calling cheat sheet. Method. I call it a method. A method. Yeah, mic drop framework method. method. Yeah, the mic drop method. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so yeah. maybe tell yeah tell us about the mic drop method. Let's jump into that. I think the audience likes okay. to hear. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So this this one came from uh, so uh, of the startups I've been a part of, um, three of them. Uh, actually, four of them have been 100% outbound, and mm-hmm. so it, it's it's tough, right? Like especially especially when you're in like a company that's founder led sales, and all of a sudden you're one, you know the first one of the first sales hires, and they're like, okay, now you know go prove this to the rest of the market. And I mean, it's it's really hard to pitch a product that has no market presence, um, might be completely novel, or or replacing a, a very well ingrained old guard incumbent and uh and and you're trying to do it in cold calling which is one of you know the least effective methods for generating business statistically so it's like triple whammy you know i don't know that that might be four whammies there i don't even know (laughs) it's it's it's, the odds are stacked against you for sure um and i just i noticed over the years jesse is studying the other elite sellers and and i'm I'm gonna derail for just a second because i I want to point out to your audience Sales is not a profession. Like, a, I don't know, it might not, might be uncomfortable for some people to hear this, but mm-hmm. like engineering is like a profession where you actually have to get um, a, a degree or some sort of certification. Uh, being a doctor is a profession where you have to be certified. You know, right. these, these sales is more like a trade skill, like um, carpentry. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need to be certified to be a carpenter. But if you wanted to be an elite carpenter, like world class, you would go study and do like a proper uh, education and, and um, internship with somebody that is a master carpenter. And that's how you would mm-hmm. learn the right techniques. You couldn't just pick up a book and read it. I mean, technically you could, but you wouldn't be very good at the woodwork, right? You, you need to go and actually learn knee to knee with that person. Sales is the same way. Like any, anyone can technically yeah. do it. Like you don't, again, you don't need a degree, right? You don't even need to graduate mm-hmm from a university to be in sales. But if you're going to be elite, you need to learn from master sellers. You're not going to get it from a book. You know, you're not going to get it from, from uh, just watching some videos on YouTube. You've got to go. And I had the chance to sit with some master sellers in those 10 years at some of those startups. And I noticed that they had this very distinct habit of being able to get the buyer talking early and upfront and when that didn't occur, it led to 
lower quality outcomes. And that's where the mic drop method was born from, which is this idea of get your buyer talking early and upfront. You see huge gains when you do that. So the, the method is very simple. It's yeah. permission, problem, provoke, promise. So permission, hey, Jesse, I know you're not expecting my call. Do you have a moment? I promise to be brief. Letting mm -hmm. you right out the gate. You don't know me. This is a cold call. And if that's not your style, let me know right now because I don't want to try. But if it is your style or you're going to give me a chance, here we go. Be prepared. And then problem. I know, Jesse, for a lot of companies like yours, the second largest cost after payroll is health benefits, which have been rising 9 to 15% year over year. Then I'm going to provoke. How do you handle your second largest costs rising 9 to 15% year over year? Damn. And so in 26 seconds, you know, I went from a hello to a really thoughtful question that was framed with a clearly informed problem statement. Wow. And now all of a sudden the buyer's like, wait, who is this again? That, that was the number one response. <laughs> Literally the number one response that I used to get was, who is this again? It's just like, who is this person that just asked me this really thoughtful question? Yeah. And I would just repeat, hey, my name is Bilal calling from Trinet. Uh, once again, I, I'm, I know your second largest cost. And then I just, you know, roll right into it again. And it was amazing the quality of conversations that I was having with people by asking this open-ended what or how question and provoking them, uh, knowing and showing them that I'm informed about the problems that they face. Nowhere in there mm -hmm. that I pitch, like ditch the pitch. Yeah. Nowhere in there that I pitch. They still don't know what I do or what I sell or how I solve it because they don't need to. Right. I need to identify that they even have the problem in the first place, place and that they're willing to mm -hmm. embrace that problem before I ever bother to try to you know, throw a pitch at them. It's genius. And this works across any kind of industry because you just need to take it. I, I imagine, I'm assuming here, it works on, on any buyer persona, any industry, because it really just comes down to asking impactful questions rather than pitching something feature function, you know, whatever it's, it's more Nailed about it. starting a Yeah. It's more about starting a dialogue and it's disarming because if you're on the other end of that phone call and someone asks you this like profound question about, a, you know, teasing out like a potential inefficiency or you know, a future state problem, then how do you not respond with, I've got to know more now. So I love it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it totally negates the number one objection that people get in cold calling, which is not interested. And, and that's what I got when I was first, like, it took me three years to really unlearn some bad practices that I learned early in my sales career, because a lot of the sales training I got just taught me wrong. And one of those bad pra practices that I got was, was pitching. Uh, I used to pitch and people would tell me not interested and hang up. And I mean, I, I totally understood why, like I hated cold calling initially because I was like, why would they be interested? I'm just calling this like random person out of the blue and starting to tell them about why my company's awesome. They've never heard of me or my company. So I, I, start, I stopped yeah. treating not interested like an objection. And I changed my mindset to say, not interested isn't an objection. It's a negative review. You know, mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like scoring rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> like, they don't want that movie. They don't want to see that plot. They don't want to see the trailer. Not interested. Right. Wow. So instead of seeking to diffuse that objection, um, preventing it from ever happening, 
that's what drove the mic drop method of like, wait, instead of pitching them, why don't I ask them a really hard question? That's not very easy to answer and get them talking. And sure enough, when I get them talking the first, you know, 30 to 45 seconds of a cold call, it completely changes the dynamic of the call and the outcomes that I get. How do you, is there a way to also sort of take this mic drop methodology and put it into a cold email or is this specific for calling? There is, but, but the common mistake that people make is that, um, so you want to, you want to be repetitive in your messaging across all channels so that there's a common theme and, and the buyer can then, um, create, uh, some brand recognition to the problem you're trying to address, but you got to respect that, uh, every medium gives you flexibility. So what I can do on a cold call with my voice is different than what I can achieve in an email using text is different than what I can achieve sending a LinkedIn message. Um, right. So in an in email, you want, to, you want to be a little bit more story-driven and just give um, slightly more narrative, but, but it's the same problem. So it's, it's going to be the same problem statement and it's going to be the same question. But because over, over an email sequence, I can build a story. So mm-hmm. touch one just sets up touch number two. Touch two just right. sets up touch number three. And on touch number four through seven, that's when I'm going to ask you for something because statistically speaking, that's where the highest likelihood to respond, to respond is that your mm-hmm. highest response touch rate on pretty much any sequence. Um, and you'll see this repeated in the state of sales reports from like outreach and sales loft and other tools like that right, is touch right. four to seven typically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that's the case, then build a story, use your first set of touches to tee up. Uh, uh, basically a storyboard where you can then deliver that punchy question in somewhere between touch four to seven and get your highest response. That's amazing. And I love the, I love the framework. So how do you, how do you now take this frame? It sounds like you help companies implement this on their sales teams. What is that process like? I'm just, you know, curious how that scales, uh, you know, across maybe a whole inside sales team. Uh, you know, so the, the first thing that has to happen when companies try to adopt this is they, they have to undo the curse of knowledge, which is, again, mm-hmm. something I was not taught in any of the sales trainings. I, I've done like six different sales trainings, Jesse. So I've done like Sandler and Winning by Design and Challenger and all these different ones. And they were all great. They all taught me different things and I was able to take from them. But one thing that none of them taught me was the curse of knowledge, which is that, you know, I know everything about my company and product. My buyer knows pretty much next to nothing. And so when I speak to them, I typically speak from context that they don't have, and there's a huge disconnect there. So this is like why you'll see a lot of sellers say, I help blank with blank, right? The problem with that sentence is the seller is the center of that sentence. The the seller is the hero. Mm. I help you with your problems. Interesting. But but that's because you're cursed with knowledge and you know all the ways your company has helped your customers, but you're not talking to a customer. You're talking to a buyer. Mm. So you need to flip the sentence to be like, have you had issues in the past with, or have you had enough of dealing with blank? Because when wow. I say that, that sentence is about you, not me. I've removed myself from center stage and I've put you as the center of the sentence. Holy shit, man. 
That's a hard <laughs> shift. That's a hard shift because yeah. you're, you're not taught that, right? Your your first week of any new job is here's our company, here's our product, here's our background, here's our founder mm-hmm. story, here's our you know, so you just yeah, we, get bombarded with all this knowledge that your buyer doesn't have. And what's the first thing you do when you get on the phone? You vomit all that back on them. Yeah, we uh, help X it, with Y. That's it. I mean, that's what you're trained to do. Yeah. Wow. Right. It doesn't that work a, though. <laughs> oh, dude, that is a, an incredible just paradigm shift for me. And I'm, you know, again, I've been doing this a long time, but I'm so guilty of the I help X with Y. And, you know, that's on my LinkedIn profile. It's just, yeah, it's what we're taught. So that's interesting that there is a, you know, kind of that knowledge fallacy, right? When you have too much knowledge, you have to then sort of pull it back and, and, you know, rethink how, how you're approaching everything. You've done a really good job of that. Just reading through some of your posts and looking at your content, uh, you really are challenging that I guess we can call it the status quo. And the funny thing is we don't even realize it's the status quo because this is what we're taught by innovative sales training companies and even innovative sales managers perpetuate this stuff. Uh, But wow, you've done a really amazing job of just shifting the, yeah, just shifting the paradigm. That's amazing. It's, it's tough. I mean, your mind Mm -hmm. is like, it's natural to make yourself the center of the universe, right? We're, we're naturally egocentric. So you are, you are fighting a natural urge by trying to make somebody else the center of the sentence or, or the idea. And, and it's not supposed to be easy. You know, anybody that says sales is natural or, or, or you know, um, that, that kind of stuff pisses me off because it, it's not. It, it's a science and it's a premeditated science and it takes a ton of concentration. It's not normal to awkwardly stay in silence in order to get somebody else to speak. It's not natural to constantly use open-ended questions in order to create more dialogue. You know, it's not natural to do this like mic drop method and and put somebody else center stage and remove yourself uh, Mm -hmm. from the conversation. These are not, these are not things you're taught as a child. (laughs) So, so, you know, anybody that says it's like, uh, you know, some people are like natural sellers or something like, no, no, elite sellers are very premeditated in in what they do and their actions and behaviors. It's not supposed to be easy. Hmm. Wow. Tell me about, uh, you know, what, what are some other things that you see reps doing, uh, you mistakenly doing, and, and again, maybe it's a, the knowledge bias or the, uh, you know, knowledge fallacy. What are some other areas where you see reps just totally falling on their face when they don't have to? Yeah. You know, one of the bigger, one of the other big ones besides like that curse of knowledge and, and again, putting themselves as the hero instead of the, the buyer that that's, those are two big cardinal sins, but, but the other one is like, um, again, and I wasn't taught any of this in any of the sales trainings I did, is sellers typically fail to acknowledge the way the buyer is getting the job done today, like an appreciation of the status quo. So let me give you an example of that. I had a seller message me like um, a few weeks back and he's like, you know, most of my buyers, after I give them the, the pitch, they'll tell me, yeah, but we already have a vendor for that. And, right. and I'm like, okay, how many, how many, how many vendors are typically in your space? There's like, oh, there's only three major players. I'm like, why don't you just lead with that? Like, why are you <laughs> pretending that those three major players don't exist and that yeah. your product is better than them? Why not? What's the harm in sounding informed as a seller and calling yeah. up a buyer and being like, listen, Jesse, I know most companies use either, you know, Cisco or RingCentral or, you know, Avaya. 
for their VoIP. Mm -hmm. Which which of those three are you using today? Like, wow, right out the gate, you just named your top three competitors and just said, I already know this is the world today. Why would mm -hmm. I pretend that it's not? I'd rather just understand where you stand on these on these uh, offerings. Do you see an issue with them or not? Because we do, and we think that things can be done differently. So it's like this wow. this lack of acknowledging the status quo or the way this the buyer is getting the job done. Mm -hmm. um, it makes you you know it makes a seller sound ill informed, and and that's only going to hurt you. In, in any sales cycle, no matter yeah. what you sell, right? Like yeah. sounding ill-informed to your buyer is never a wise strategy. Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way a few years back. I was at a startup and our product was a good next step off of a homegrown system. Uh -huh. And when I started out, I was calling into people basically saying, you know, undoubtedly you're going to love this compared to the, the, the dog shit that you have that you built. And I'm reaching out to DevOps engineers who built that homegrown system themselves. So I just sounded completely unaware and totally lacked empathy when it came to like, Hey, I spent 18 months building this homegrown solution and you're going to call me on the phone or email me and tell me my, my product is shit. Uh, no, that's like, so no, I'm not going to listen to you now. And so I had to learn that the hard way after a couple of really bad mess ups, uh, a coach gave me that, that advice and said, well, first of all, you're, you're calling their baby ugly. I think you can, you know, you can sell a better solution to what they're doing now without calling their baby ugly. And that's, that's, that's kind of how I think about that. Um, but that's interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought about it in, in other ways, but acknowledging that, you know, software companies don't exist in a vacuum. Undoubtedly there's big gorillas in the space that already exist. How do you differentiate but, you know, not trying to, to gaslight people into thinking that, you know, they might not have things figured out in, in the current state. So that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, it goes back to the idea that like your buyer is getting the job done. That's why you're calling them because they've been mm -hmm. successful. So what changed? Why all of a sudden should it matter? Because long before you call them and long after you hang up, they'll continue to be successful. Now, of course, it might not be as good or as wonderful or as, you know, as efficient as it would have been had they bought your product, but they'll get the job done. So you're, you know, what you're really doing is explaining to them why it just changed. Now, now I'm going to show you something that you can't unsee, you know, like that stain on your shirt. Once you catch it, you can't unsee it. And you're like, mm -hmm. God, why do I can't wear this shirt anymore? You know, but until that point, you thought that shirt was fine. There was right. no issues with it. And now you can't unsee the stain. It's the same thing. Get your buyer to that state of like, no, I know this shirt was fine up until right now. And now I'm going to show you why you can't wear it anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that, that's the goal. That's what you're really trying to do in the essence of it. And uh, again, if you're, if you're ill-informed or you're not willing to acknowledge the way they're getting the job done or the status quo and how it works today for them, you're just going to sound ill-informed. Mm -hmm. I read a post uh, you put out, put out there a couple of days ago it was a couple of weeks ago about emotionally charging your sales messaging. Tell me about that yeah. a little bit. You know, I think we, we uh, sellers, we, we suffer sometimes from um, like the business speak. I think that's part of the death to fluff uh, movement. Yeah. There. It's just like, you know, uh, I, I look forward to hearing your response. I'd be happy to answer any of your questions. We get this, um, you know, bullshit um, yeah. kindness. Uh, yep. That only it's only there 
when someone's trying to marry your daughter or sell you something, you know, it's like, that's the only two scenarios where somebody gets that happy go lucky. It's just, you know, it's, yeah. it's so, it's so fake and it doesn't work. And we, this perception that somehow if we're kind or nice or polite, they'll like us more when instead you just, you just need to state it like it is like be disarmingly blunt. So you'll get a message that says something like we help save companies 40% on their, you know, processing fees. It's like, okay, that's all about you, not them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, you know, it's, makes my eyes roll like sure you can right and uh, it's easily ignorable now okay make it emotionally charged and 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 flip it to be about them not you people get pissed off when they're finding out they're spending up to 40 percent extra on processing fees Hmm. now it's like okay yeah that hits that it lands a lot better than than just a blanket promise of 50 to 80 percent savings right yeah so it's, it's this inversion of what, what, what the value. So, you know, sellers are, are trying to be helpful and value driven when in reality they need to stop the helpfulness because nobody asked for it. It's unsolicited and, and stop talking about value and stop talk, start talking about opportunity cost. You know, yeah. I, wow. I, I, I like saving time. I hate wasting my time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's nice to save money. I hate overspending, you know? So mm-hmm. what, what does it cost me if I, if I don't change, if I fail to, uh, to adapt, what, what's it going to cost me? Cause I, you know, everybody understands, um, being last or missing out. That's mm-hmm. universal. Oh yeah. Right? Doesn't matter what culture you're from, what religion, you know, what part of the world you you were born in that's a universal principle don't be last Mm -hmm. don't don't lose out right don't do things the hard way when there's an easier way so Hmm. you know use those universal principles those universal principles of humanity to your advantage as a seller yeah you talk a lot about psychology human psychology in your posts and in your content uh, are, did you study psychology or is it just more of a, a passion and you can see the business application of it? It was a passion. I had, I think I had enough credits at university or it was like one, like a couple short to get a minor in psychology. I, nice. I, I definitely enjoy it. My wife has a, uh, her master's in psychology. Oh, so wow. we talk about it often. I, I like that stuff because I'm, I'm hella lazy, Jesse. I mean, God, <laughs> I am one of the laziest people you'll meet. And I like <laughs> the easiest path from A to B in psychology constantly gives me that, you know, it's like, it's amazing. Some of the research that I find in psychology dating back to like the fifties and like Mm forties. And I'm just like, none of my sales training taught me this. And, you know, science has known this for like 60 something years. What the (laughs) hell? (laughs) Like what's going on? Like I'll give you a crazy one. I'll give you a real example here. Yeah, let's hear. And your 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 listeners might not believe me, okay? But um, the (laughs) Max Planck Institute in Germany. Okay, Mm -hmm. I think this was back in like 2010 or something. But somebody fact checked me and looked this up. The Max Planck Institute in Germany, over a decade ago, does this study where they can determine the decision somebody's going going to make a full seven to 10 seconds before the person's even aware that they've made a decision. How do they do that? 
I know, right? Yeah, well, first but, uh, off, that's crazy. You know, like yeah. seven to 10, like think about how long, like let me just count seven seconds right now in silence just so people can appreciate how long this is. That's seven seconds. <laughs> nice. That's how long the researchers knew before the person was even cognitively aware that they came to a decision, what the decision was going to be. Now, you would think as sellers, that would be pretty good to know, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, now, you tell me in any sales training you've ever done, in any SKO you've ever attended, in anything, have you ever heard about that research? Not at all. And, and did you say it's more than 50 years old? That research, no, that research is probably more than a decade old. Okay, decade old. Yeah, that, no, that I've never- of, That piece of research, yeah, it's probably- Never I think even it's like heard early of- 2010, yeah. Yeah, I've never even heard of Max Planck Institute or anything. Uh, yeah. No, never had that reference in a Sandler, uh, you know, command a message training at all. Right. Now what, now, what the researchers did was they were able to connect to the limbic brain of the person and see the synapses firing off before the neocortex became activated. And they were able to predict what the decision was going to be. Now, and this goes back to fundamental psychology about how people make decisions. It's all the limbic brain, which is, which is like the back of your brain going towards your neck. That's called the old brain or the croc brain. It has a bunch of different names, but scientifically it's the limbic brain. That's where decisions start. And then they are justified and acted upon by the front of your brain, which is called the neocortex. Mm-hmm. And the limbic brain is responsible for the fight, flight, or freeze reaction. It's the emotional stem of the brain. And that's why emotional messaging works. That's why stories work because stories typically invoke our emotions. So as a seller, you know, you, like when I, when I do the mic drop method and I state a problem that's relevant to you and then I ask you how you handle it, I'm invoking your, your limbic brain. All the problems, mm. all the anxiety, all the stress, all the... Um, fear or doubt that you feel about that problem is firing off when I ask you that thoughtful question. Wow. That's exactly what I want. Because now I'm going to get you that much closer to making the first decision, which is taking some time to meet with me. And eventually the bigger decision down the road, which is buy from me. Wow. So you seem very well read. Tell us about some of the books that I'm assuming that, by the way, maybe you're like, no, I just read a lot of blogs or something. What are some books, what are some books that were game changers? And I hate to overuse game changing, but you know, what are some books that really changed your perspective on things uh, or that you would, you know, point to as having made a major impact on your, not only your career, but your mindset and everything else. No, so I mean, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely some books out there that people should, should be reading. I think one of the best ones is, um, Dr. Cialdini, uh, he's sort of like the godfather of um, influence psychology. And he's got a book called uh, Influence. Uh, it talks about the six universal principles of influence that his research um, has discovered. And it is like mm. a game changer that most sellers have never heard of, but they need to. So his wow. book Influence is a big one. Um, Dan Pink and uh, his book Drive is a really, really important one to understand. Um, I'm big fans of like Todd Capone, uh, um, transparency sale and, um, mm-hmm. David primer that sell the way you buy are, are two great books, um, as well. 
there, I mean, there are people out there talking about sales and psychology and, and you should, you should, as a seller, be seeking them because again, they're going to give you those, those hacks, those shortcuts that science has already shown us work, but unfortunately for whatever reason, I mean, that could be a whole nother episode has not made its way to mainstream sales. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Who came up with the methodologies that we all use? That's what I can't figure out. None of them are psychology based. Uh, maybe they worked at some point in time, uh, but I don't think so. I don't think they were ever highly effective. I don't Do you have know. any? Ins- I really, yeah, I don't know. Super interesting. I got so question kind of on. I think on behalf of the audience, a lot of the listeners are early in their career and navigating, you know, a global pandemic and a new sales career. A lot of my listeners are also transitioning from another profession uh, or another industry and getting up to speed on the SaaS sales industry. What can, what can these reps do to, you know, sort of streamline their career, get up to speed on, you know, being the best at their game. And then also how can they, there's a lot of questions, by the way, how can they also, be part of shaping the industry and making it better? Because I, I think a big part of your mission is you demand, you demand a higher, what's the word I'm looking for here? You, you just, you demand better from the industry. Uh, we ought to be working smarter, not harder. The hustle culture that has been, you know, commonplace here is, is we're over it and it's not working. So what can new sellers do to, to be the best at their game, but also help shape the industry and, and make it better? I mean, it's a great question, Jesse. It's a complicated one, one that I, I don't want to oversimplify because we yeah. have a nature to, to oversimplify the complicated. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like a multitude of factors that, you know, all fractionally add up to the total. Um, and and I, I think about, I, you know, I, just, I want to point out something to, to the listeners. I think I saw a stat in some state of sales report recently that said, um, more than 81% of sellers fail to hit 75% of their quota. So, yeah, you know, the significant vast majority of sellers fail to hit even, you know, three quarters of their goal. Um, one that one stat that blew my mind, Jake Dunlap put out, or maybe he may have not been the first one to say it, but I know I read it from him probably about a year or two ago, which was like, at the VP of sales level in a startup, the average tenure is like 18 months or something. That's the leader. The person in charge lasts 18 months on average in a you know VC-backed startup. And that absolutely blew my mind. And I'm not going to lie, it made me a little bit depressed because a lot of us are, you know, especially a lot of my listeners are probably thinking, man, one day I want to be that guy or that girl that's the VP of sales at such and such startup. But when you hear a stat like that, it's a little devastating. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, so like, it a hundred percent should be it like, so yeah. here's the thing there's, you know, in anything, there's more mediocrity than excellence, right? Like the ratio to mediocrity to excellence in anything, you know, is going to be disproportionate sales is no exception to that. There's a lot of mediocrity. There's very little excellence. So that's just something to keep in mind. And just so like your listeners know, personally, I I've been the number one rep at four startups. And I've been the dead last. I'm not talking about like, bottom third i'm talking about like last last place at two startups so and they didn't come in order it was like first first last first first last so it wasn't like (laughs) it wasn't like in the beginning days and i didn't like it came in the middle i still knew how to sell but i was just at the wrong company 
with the wrong product, with the wrong management, you know, with the wrong mindset, everything, and in performance was non-existent. So the mm-hmm. thing about sales is that um, there's there's a lot of factors that are going to be outside of your control that are going to dictate your success. Okay, um, you know, product things, com- competition things, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, pricing things, things that like you don't necessarily have full control over, but they're going to impact even from the buyer side that are going to impact your success. That's the one thing to keep in mind. So detaching from the outcome is a really, really important thing for resiliency. Yeah, you know, to, to build resiliency, to realize that the dashboard doesn't define you. The metrics mm-hmm. don't define you. When I when I was that dead last seller at my third startup, I went and got another job. <laughs> you know, like I didn't quit sales. I was like, okay, that wasn't right for me. I'll get back because I know I'm yeah. doing it right. That just wasn't the place to do it. It's like when you see an elite athlete and they get traded to a new team and all of a sudden they don't perform as well as they did on the prior team. It's a different system. It's a different style of play and they don't adapt mm-hmm. well. You're going to see that in your career. So just be open to the idea that you're going to stumble. That's, mm. you know, build that resiliency and just know that that's going to happen. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, yeah. you know, your, your success as a seller um, and your ability uh, to reach the, the top levels is execution over time, okay? It's not any mm-hmm. single month or quarter, right? You, you, no single month will carry your entire year. It's extremely rare that that would ever happen. Right. You know, you're going to have to be consistent month over month, year over year. And that comes back to process. Process is what leads to um, successful execution. So the mm-hmm. seller that thinks about, for example, okay, uh, if my win rate is 12%, is it easier for me to increase my win rate from 12 to 14%? Or is it easier to decrease my loss rate from 88% to 70%? Mm, interesting. Yeah. You know, what, what's, what's easier for me to do? You know, Let me be more efficient with my time, more ruthlessly efficient. Stop selling to people that aren't going to buy have a kind of a six Sigma mindset, cut the waste. Mm -hmm. And that's going to lead to more consistent results. You know, that's a process driven seller. And again, you know, your sales training is going to teach you this, but you will, you will learn this if you sit down with master sellers, because you will see them ruthlessly disqualifying, being extremely guarded with their time, only committing to people that have shown a willingness to change and buy. And you're like, okay, this is a completely different mindset. So like a, like a mindset of abundance, like if this isn't going to work out, no, thank you. I'd like to stop it here and save my own time and yours and find somebody that is going to go through the process with me. And, and that's the difference between an elite and average seller. You know, the ones that are hitting plus 150% and the ones that kind of ha- hover at or below quota. That's awesome. That, that is, that's solid. It's huge. That, yeah, that's that's amazing advice. Hopefully, everyone can take that to heart. Who really wants to be at the top of the game, top of their game, and you know, be a world class, high performance seller. That's so awesome. Appreciate it. It came from experience. Trust me. I, I learned more about myself <laughs> being dead last twice than I ever did being number one four times. I could tell you that. Wow. 
Well, uh, Bilal, we're coming up here on an hour and I actually have a hard stop. What I'm thinking is we need to have you as a recurring guest on the show because I, I think we could probably talk for five more hours with all the questions I have for you. And this interview only led to more questions. So uh, we, ne- we need to get that book sometime. But just really quickly before we wrap up, where can my listeners reach you, find you, uh, you know, tell, tell us all that because where, where can we find you online? Probably not hard sure. to find you on LinkedIn, but you know anything else, and anything else you want to share as a, as final thoughts and parting. I appreciate it, Jesse. Yeah, the, so LinkedIn first and foremost, please follow me there. I've got a newsletter that will be launching very soon, deathtofluff.substack.com to sign up for that. Um, and uh, if you if you you Google search my name or, or search me up on YouTube, you'll find some videos I've done with with Jason Bay and a few others going into a little bit more detail, some of the stuff we talked about, like the mic drop method, like some yeah. of the sales psychology and so on. And I highly recommend listening to that to, to get a more in-depth uh, understanding of some of those um, methods and, and tactics. So, but definitely uh, the newsletter is probably the best place outside of LinkedIn yeah. to find more of my content. Yeah, and I will post in the show notes, the, the mic drop, method, the link to the mic drop method, which is also on your LinkedIn profile and your featured section. Um, free worksheet, man. Price is right. <laughs> it is free 99. Get it. Yeah, that is awesome. I, I can't, I actually can't believe you're giving that away for free, but that's another conversation for another day because I feel like that's, it's incredibly powerful. I'm downloading it right now. And I think I'm going to grind out some calls here this afternoon. Nice. Well, Bilal, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to the next episode. It's my honor. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Thanks for the thoughtful questions. And uh, I'm excited to hear from, from the listeners uh, any, any results they get. So please, please keep me informed on any results you guys get. I love hearing the wins. Yeah.